From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. A year-long expedition on an ice floe, drifting on the ocean. The challenges included flying a drone in the Arctic. All right, count me down. Three, two, one, go. Awesome job. The wings are almost breaking up. Yeah. The aha moments of the mosaic expedition and what's left to learn about climate change as researchers return home to Boulder. Then a Colorado Springs high school embraces the saying, the show must go on, even during a pandemic. How they turned to theater of the mind to stage a radio play. It it has taught me so much about just the certain aspects that you can use your voice for. And it just kind of opened up this whole new door to being an actress. During a time when so many of us have been physically distanced from friends, neighbors, and colleagues, your generous support has helped Colorado Public Radio bridge the gaps, bringing our community together through the stories that connect us all. Voluntary support is the lifeblood of the content and coverage we all rely on. Thank you for being our partner in making this kind of radio happen for the Colorado community, each and every day. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. From the top of the world, here's Boulder scientist Gina Joseph and her drone. All right, count me down. Three, two, one, go. Autopilot. Smooth. Super smooth. Just a few seconds there from the biggest research mission ever in the Arctic. For a year, a ship called the MV Polarstern was locked on an ice floe, drifting in the ocean while hundreds of scientists studied climate change. And while the scientists worked, they waited and wondered about the pandemic raging across the rest of the world. Matthew Shoup is a senior research scientist at the University of Colorado Boulder and co-leader of the Mosaic Expedition. Hi, Matthew. Hi, thanks for having me on. Gina Joseph is a CU graduate student and that drone pilot. Welcome, Gina. Hi, thank you. Matthew, you were one of the brains behind Mosaic for years before it took sail. You'd already been to the Arctic. Was there an aha moment on this trip, something that really impressed you about what's going on up there now? Yeah, well, first off, this trip was really extraordinary because it brings together so many different people from the international community. So for me, the aha moment there was just seeing this whole international team, people from 37 different nations coming together to work on these shared uh, science objectives in the Arctic uh, and really just being so collaborative and cooperative. That's great. And then what about changes that you were seeing? We'll get more into the details, but was there something kind of top line that stood out to you while you were there? Yes, the the sea ice, of course. The sea ice is declining. We we know this, but boy, to stand out in the middle of it, it's really extraordinary to see the changes over the last couple of decades. The ice is so much thinner than it used to be. And, you know, it cracks more. It it moves in different ways. And so really the character of the sea ice, uh, I've, I've witnessed it changing over the last decades that I've been going there. Not many of us actually get to see that in person. Gina, crews rotated on and off the polar stern for a few months at a time. You were supposed to be there two months. You actually spent about four months. Tell me about why that was. 
Yeah, so I left for the expedition just at the end of January. And at that time, uh, the coronavirus wasn't really a thing um, in the United States yet. Um, so I expected to, to go on my leg of the expedition and come back as planned um, near the beginning of April. Um, but as we were out there and things started to develop um, with COVID-19, um, the plans that we had originally had to do the exchange um, between my leg and the next crew of scientists um, at the beginning of April um, fell through a bit and <laughs> new plans had to be made. And that resulted in us having to stay there quite a bit longer um, through to almost the middle of June. I mean, the Arctic is an incredible place to get to spend time, but also incredibly isolated. How did it feel when your trip was extended? At first, it was it was a little bit difficult to adapt to just to think about the plans that I had um, back home for after April. Um, I was slowly watching those go away, um, realizing I wasn't going to get to do certain things I had planned. But at the same time, I was out here on um, an expedition that was probably the most incredible experience of my life. Um, and so I really couldn't complain too much just to have more time out there. Um, every day is in a new, new and unique experience. And um, so, yeah, in the end, it was really great. <laughs> Matthew, tell us about how much time you spent on the ship. I was out on the ship for two different time periods. One was uh, last winter. So that was approximately four months last winter. Uh, and then again, uh, this past summer uh, for another uh, three and a half to four months. So yeah, both times were really uh, awesome uh, adventures out there, but totally different because one was in the dark and one was in the light. Yeah, that's incredible. And Gina, we heard Matthew talk about it started out, this whole expedition started out in the dark. What was it like for you when you got home to Boulder when you were done just dealing with the change in weather or the change in the world with the pandemic? Yeah, it was really strange to have just been in an environment that was basically wintertime from January um, through June. And then all of a sudden I got back to, to Colorado and I had forgot that actually it was the summer <laughs> um, back home. So um, it was a big uh, season change there. But on top of that, um, yeah, I came back to a world I didn't recognize. Um, all my friends and family back home, they had had months to adapt to how the world was changing um, with COVID. Um, but me, I had kind of just got thrown into it and had to learn on the fly um, a lot of the new habits that people had learned. Um, and on top of that, it was really strange um, to go from being on a ship where you're constantly with people all the time um, to back home where I had to quarantine um, by myself at my apartment for two weeks. And it was just really a big shock in, in terms of day-to-day -day life. You know, like I think of the Arctic as the world where nobody would recognize full of ice and seafloats, but then coming back to pandemic Boulder, even that is drastically different. Um, how did you keep up with your colleagues when you came back home? Were you able to communicate with them? And how did you keep up with people in at home when you were in the Arctic? Yeah, there's there's a bit of different options that they have for us to communicate with people back home. Um, luckily, there's a WhatsApp connection on the ship that works pretty well. Um, so you can, you can always text people back home. Um, you can also, if you want to pay for a satellite phone call. Um, so every now and then I would do that just to make sure I kept in touch with friends and family back home um, throughout the expedition. And then after returning, um, I got into Zoom as everyone was already <laughs> into um, and got to see family a lot more then. And I thought it was interesting that I, I, th I think I started to talk to family um, and friends actually maybe more than I would um, without the pandemic, um, just because everything felt separated. So we were taking advantage of the Zoom even more. Right. Like at some point, we're all geographically the same distance apart if we're all just having to connect on Zoom. Mm -hmm. Matthew, you're on the first leg of this journey in fall of 2019. By the time the pandemic hit, you were back in Boulder. So you were kind of living through the pandemic here and trying to deal with what was happening in the Arctic, too. What was juggling those two worlds like? 
Well, it was a it was a big challenge, of course, right? Seeing the pandemic really set in right in the middle of Mosaic, right? I've I've spent the last at least decade of my life working on this, and and to see this pandemic perhaps jeopardize the mission, it was it made me a little nervous, and so I worked really hard to communicate with the people on board, uh, to work with a lot of our leadership to develop plans so that we could get our people rotated uh, and so that we could continue this mission in spite of the challenges posed by the pandemic. And so for myself, I actually changed my plans and I decided to get back out there as quickly as I could. And so uh, actually, as Gina was coming back out, I was going back in uh, so that I could get out there and help to make sure our mission could continue forward in spite of this challenge. At the same time, you're trying to protect the science. You're also trying to protect the people, both physically and mentally and emotionally. With any, everything going on, how did you, how were you able to help with the morale of folks who are on the ship while the pandemic was getting started and then really raging? Yeah, I, I spent a lot of time trying to communicate with people on board, uh, emailing, um, so I could figure out what the state of mind was there. Right, the state of mind is an important thing when you're out there, isolated in the Central Arctic, cut off from uh, the rest of humankind. And so, I really tried to figure out what people needed, and it, and it turned out that one of the big issues that we had was kind of a lack of communication. Right, we realized that while all of us back home we have access to the news all the time, people out there didn't really have great access. They didn't really know how the pandemic was evolving and how it was hitting their own communities. And so. Uh, you know, we tried to increase the amount of information that was flowing to the site. And then also importantly, we tried to communicate that we are working very hard to come up with alternate plans to get people out of there. You know, our plans were falling through. Uh, we were lacking access to some of the vessels that we needed. Uh, some of the ports were closing, things like that. And it was really a challenge on this end, but we needed to communicate that to the people on site. And so once we started communicating that we actually are working on plans and we actually have some possibilities, I think that that actually really helped people on site. Were you able to get people off the ship if they really needed to get off? We actually did arrange to have a, a small aircraft go out and land out on the ice near the ship to take a few people home, a few people that really needed to get back uh, for various personal reasons. And so I think that also helped by getting a, a few people with more urgent needs to get home to get them back home. I think that helped the overall feeling uh, and energy on site. Let's get into the science. Matthew, tell me about the scope of this project. What did it take to make a year in the Arctic happen? Yeah, well, it really takes a huge community, right? It takes an international community of uh, the world's leading scientists to, to make this happen. Uh, we brought together um, all kinds of perspectives and, and really spent many years planning the science here. And the science really focuses on the sea ice, right? The sea ice is in decline right now. Uh, it's getting thinner. It's getting spatially less extensive. And so that's the focus of our science. And we're looking at all the processes that are involved in the decline of that sea ice. So this is processes from the atmosphere, from the ocean, from the ice itself, all kind of interlinked. And then we're also looking at the implications of that decline in the sea ice. How does that affect the ecosystem? How does that affect a lot of the biological, chemical processes that are playing out in the system? And how does that affect things like the weather that we experience around the rest of the globe? So that's kind of the overall premise of our science. And what was the fundamental goal of Mosaic? And can you kind of give us a hint at some of the key findings? 
Yeah, our goal is really to go and collect knowledge, right? We're going into the Central Arctic to understand the system so that we can bring that knowledge back home. And that knowledge is going to play multiple roles. It's going to serve to help improve the models that we use to represent our Earth system, uh, to represent the changing Arctic, uh, to predict our weather. So that's one of the really important goals is to improve those models and to bring back uh, a variety of data to help support all kinds of research. Um, some of the early results that are very interesting are, of course, related to that changing sea ice, right? The ice is very thin. It cracked a lot when we were there. That was a huge challenge for us operationally, but it's also this really cool uh, and unique scientific opportunity to understand what does a cracking and dynamic ice pack do to, for example, the exchange of heat in the system, right? If, you, if you're interested in melting sea ice, you need to understand the heat. And, and as you crack the ice, more heat can be exchanged between the ocean and the atmosphere, for example. Uh, and other gases can be exchanged. And this has an impact on the amount of light that is transferred into the ocean that might affect the biology there. So these are largely the results that we're very interested in uh, diving into now. Uh, all these results related to this kind of dynamic ice pack. I have to imagine just being there and hearing that cracking ice must be an incredible experience. Oh, yeah. I mean, the ice is awesome. Every time I go to the, uh, the Arctic, the ice reveals itself in new ways. Uh, and mosaic was no different. Yeah, and actually, well, I take it back. It actually was different. It was more dynamic, right? The ice even displayed more of its personality. It was moving all the time. And so sometimes you just have to sit back. You know, if you if you really quiet yourself down, you can actually feel the ice move underfoot. And, wow. and sometimes you can see, for example, pressure ridges forming as the ice pushes together. And these big blocks of ice are kind of crunching together. And you can hear the squeaks and the crunches. So it's really an amazing environment to be embedded within. Gina, what research were you conducting using drones? So our main goal with our drones was to um, collect meteorological measurements um, throughout the lowest thousand meters of the atmosphere. Um, and so this includes things like temper, temperature, pressure, wind speed, and humidity. Um, and so our main process was to fly um, from between the surface and a thousand meters altitude with our drones as often as possible um, throughout the time when my team was out on Mosaic, which included um, legs three and four, which spanned um, from between March and July um, for our measurement period. And this just gives us um, data about what the lower atmosphere looks like um, and how this can change from the late winter through the late summer. Um, and as Matt mentioned, one of the main goals of Mosaic is to improve the weather and climate models. And so by collecting this, these data about what the lower atmosphere looks like in the Arctic um, in, something, in a way that's really unique in that um, drones are not typically flown this far north. Um, so this data set is really unique and hopefully can help us to improve these um, models by giving us more observations that now we can recreate um, and, and test and see if our models are, are doing the right thing. And if not, we can improve them. And for folks who are interacting with climate science models every day, how does having that kind of data actually influence our understanding of climate change and the policies that people can make? Yeah, well, just in, by improving the models, um, which can be done easily, more easily by having really fine scale measurements um, so that we just understand the, the climate system better up there, it can help us do a lot of things. It can first just help us understand how the Arctic climate is changing in itself. Um, we, we understand that the Arctic is warming about twice as fast as the rest of the planet. And on top of that, we can also think more about how um, the Arctic climate is impacting the rest of the planet um, and things like 
Um, extreme weather events um, is one thing we've seen um, to be potentially impacted by climate change in the Arctic. And so just understanding um, more about what's happening in the Arctic really can help give a sense of what's happening on, on a wider scale. That's one of the big takeaways for people in this mission is that it's not just about what's happening in the Arctic. It's about what's happening in the rest of the world as well. You mentioned that people don't fly drones typically that far north. I imagine that has to do with the actual drone mechanics themselves. How did the flying go for you? Yeah, um, in the end, the flying went really well. Um, All the systems that had been developed um, worked out really well. Um, I will say there were definitely a lot of challenges along the way. Um, One of the main ones being just how cold it was out there. Um, The beginning of the time that we started flying the drones on my leg, it was down to as cold as minus 35 degrees Celsius. Um, Sorry. And that just makes it really challenging in a lot of ways. Um, There's a few really meticulous things we need to do with our fingers um, to fly the drones. And it's really tough when you have to take off your your heavy gloves and your fingers just get cold so fast. Um, On top of that, um, as Matt had been discussing a bunch, that the ice was so dynamic um, and it was drifting really fast at the same time. And so um, we fly our drones in a fixed coordinate system that is established when we power on the drone. Um, And so then, via our autopilot system, the drone is set to fly in this fixed coordinate system um, in the track that we create. But if we're moving underneath the drone with the ice and the drone is staying in its fixed spot, it can can become really difficult to keep keep the drone close by us and be able to control it. So that was something we had to adapt to that we really didn't expect. Another just logistic piece, you had someone on your team as a bear guard. Tell me about that. Yeah, so every team of scientists that went out onto the ice each day had to take Um, a person with them who was their bear guard. And this person is equipped with um, a rifle and flare guns. And their job is just to stand watch for polar bears. Um, And then if they spot one, they're able to communicate um, via a VHF radio with everyone else on the ice um, and everyone on the ship and can take the correct precautions to keep everybody safe in that scenario. Did you interact much with polar bears in your, well, not interact with them, but did you deal with polar bears in your work shifts? Um, personally, I did not really, on leg three, we didn't really have a, a ton of polar bear, um, interactions. The, the only time we had a polar bear come through, um, the mosaic flow was early morning one day, um, before breakfast. So nobody was out on the ice, um, and we were able to get the polar bear away from us before anyone w- had gone out to work that day. Matthew, where do you recruit bear guards? <laughs> um, I didn't personally recruit the bear guards. That was uh, someone else's job. But the bear guards that were out at Mosaic, uh, there were two types. One, there were some, we'll call them professionals, right? These were actually recruited from a lot of the, the kind of northern countries. Uh, a lot of people that live on Svalbard in northern Norway. Uh, th- these are colleagues that spend a lot of time in these conditions and spend a lot of time uh, around areas where bears are prevalent. And so uh, we had some fantastic professionals out there with us that really have great knowledge about polar bears. But also the scientists also served as polar bear guards. So many of us were trained on how to uh, operate the firearms and what to look for and, and, and how to behave as a polar bear guard. And so we actually served as polar bear guards as well. And so uh, I certainly took plenty of shifts myself as a polar bear guard out there uh, to help protect my colleagues. What an interesting interaction just between the science and the nature. This ice, it was laid out with small research stations. Gita, you worked at a place called Droneville, and there was Met City. Tell me about maybe the most interesting project you saw overall.
Uh, are you asking me that? Sorry. I am, yeah. The most interesting project overall. Um, that's really tough to answer. Everything was so interesting. Um, I personally was really excited about the work that I was doing um, since it was a new experience for me. I had never flown drones before, much less in the Arctic. Um, but it was also really exciting to, to go out and see what other people were doing sometimes and help out even. Um, and especially as Matt mentioned, if you're a bear guard, you have a good opportunity to go around and see um, what some other people are up to. Um, something I found really interesting myself was um, the CTDs that they were um, deploying in the ocean, which it, it measures salinity, temperature, um, and depth. And it they can send these things all the way down to the basement of the Arctic Ocean, which is really, really deep, I think four kilometers. Um, and so it was really cool to watch that and see that we have these devices um, that are able to do that and collect this, this data for us. And Matt, you mentioned early on that a big part of this dealing with this this whole mission during a pandemic is you were worried about the disruption in the science. In the end, how did it shake out? Was there disruption? Yeah, there certainly was some disruption, right? The, this um, inability to rotate some of our crew meant that um, there were certain people that were not able to go to the field that brought certain expertise. And so uh, we had to adjust to that. Um, we had to modify the, our kind of rotation schedule. Uh, and also one of the key details of the rotation when Gina came out and when I went in uh, in the summer was that we had to actually bring the primary ship, the polar stern, had to come out of the ice to go and meet the other vessels that were bringing people in because those vessels were no longer icebreakers, right? Initially, the plan was to have icebreakers going in, but we had no more access to, to icebreakers at that time. And so the polar stern had to come out of the ice uh, to enable that rotation. And that actually led to a little bit of an interruption in some of the measurements. And that was really important because, you know, our, our basic design was to have continuity of our measurements over the course of the full year. And so some of those measurements, unfortunately, had to be interrupted for that brief period of time. But fortunately, we had a lot of great equipment, some of which was developed here at, at CU Boulder, that was able to be left out on the ice uh, and continue to make great observations while the ship was gone. And so, uh, you know, we, we took, I guess we made the most out of uh, these challenges that presented themselves. And after all of the years that you spent working on Mosaic, Matthew, did the expedition live up to your dreams? Yeah, the expedition, it actually led, it, it kind of revealed itself in its own unique way, right? It wasn't exactly as we planned. Uh, we had every detail planned out, of course, ahead of time, but uh, the Arctic didn't really cooperate entirely with that plan, but, you know, the Arctic revealed itself for what it is right now. And that's also this tremendous opportunity for us as scientists to be there to see the Arctic revealing itself as it is, because that's what we're trying to study. And so, wow. you know, I, I can only characterize this mission as a, a definitely a huge success. Right? We collected incredible. data about the Arctic right now. Matthew, thank you so much for being here. And Gina as well. Gina Joseph is a PhD student in atmospheric and oceanic sciences at CU Boulder. Matthew Shoup is a senior research scientist at CU and co-coordinator of the Mosaic Mission. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. After months of waiting, COVID-19 vaccines are here. What do you want to know about them? Hi, I'm Michelle Fulcher, a producer with Colorado Matters. We're putting together a program about Colorado's vaccine rollout, and we want to know what you want to know. Call 303-871-9191, extension 480. That's 303-871-9191 
extension 480, or tweet us at Colorado Matters. Thanks for your help. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Filling theater seats is out of the question this fall, but you know what they say, the show must go on. A Colorado Springs High School is inviting its audience into Theater of the Mind, a radio drama. Here's a taste. This play is based on interviews by the members of our theater company soon after the incidents at Colorado Springs, Colorado in February of 2019. The interviews were filmed. Tonight's performances are based on those interviews, as well as on available primary sources, including letters, newspaper articles, recordings, and security camera footage. Should I start? Why are you rolling? Okay, so I'm just going to start with the story. When I was much younger, way before I was involved with law enforcement, I, uh, I had this idea I wanted to be an artist, and this was New York. I lived in a fifth-floor walk-up, tiny studio, and I'm trying to be a painter, so I'd wait tables during the day, and I'd stay up late doing watercolors. I'd stay up until 3, 4, 5 in the morning, and that was how I noticed that I had this neighbor. I'd hear his alarm go off at 3.30, and he'd say, not again. Then at exactly 4.15, I'd hear his door open, and he would descend down the stairs. But I never saw him. One night, I couldn't stand it anymore. I wanted to see this guy. So at exactly 4.15, I heard him fumble with his lock, and I crept to my own front door. The door had this big peephole, about this big, that was covered with a metal plate that you had to slide away to look through. I turned off my own light, slid the plate aside, and pressed my eye up against the peephole. And I screamed. An involuntary scream that comes out like that. A, a real scream. It's, it's very different. It's not like a movie scream. It was like... Ah! So I scream and I fall back against the bathroom door. Huge commotion as I hit the ground. Because what had happened was... I slid that little plate aside to look out. And I saw an eye. He was looking in at me. I'm on the floor and I just freeze. Finally, from the other side of the door, I heard the sound of the guy picking up his keys and then start down the stairs. Now I had to see what he looked like. I picked myself up, pressed myself against the door, and once again looked through. There's that eye again. It's mine. It's the reflection of my own eye. I realized it just in time to see this freaked out postman heading down the stairs. That was the most scared I've ever been. And it was just me scaring me. The only other time I've heard that scream, what a real scream sounds like, was that night when I heard 241 people make it all at once. I told that story to Candelaria and she said, you're missing part of the lesson. There's more than one thing that scared you. It was mostly about being startled. But what was the first thing you did? You flicked off the light switch. People are naturally scared of the dark. The Colorado Springs School's production is called Trap. It's Jonathan Andahar's first year as theater director at the Colorado Springs School. Hi, Jonathan. Hello. Thanks for having me. Whitney Ricciardi acts in Trap. She's a senior. Hi, Whitney. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. And Hagen Malone is also in the production. He is a sophomore. Hagen, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. 
So radio drama seems perfect for a socially distant year. Jonathan, how did you pitch it to your students to get them excited about the pivot from a traditional play? Well, at first, I didn't pitch it to them. We were expecting to do something in person, and we were expecting to pivot from theater to film, and it just kind of hit me to do the radio play. And once I was able to decide that we were going to do the radio play, it was easy for me to say, this is why the radio play is so much more exciting. We can do this. We can do that. We don't have to worry about space and time as much. Um, and also, I really try to drive in home the fact that it really does take a whole fresh set of skills to do this. Um, it will strengthen the skills that you have in certain areas while focusing others. So it just felt like a challenge to those that love challenges. And it seemed like a new experience for those that were willing to have a new experience. This isn't actually your first stab at a radio drama. You'd already been working on writing a radio play for the Colorado Springs Fine Arts Center. How do you think about radio drama as an art form unto itself? Uh, radio drama as its own art form is super exciting because the play lives in a complete world of sound. So you have no limitations of set. You can be in point A and point B and point C instantaneously as in film. Uh, and you don't have to worry about the set. So that is one thing, but also just the incredible way in which sound comes together to create that same atmosphere without sight at all is, is just incredible. And Hagen, that's actually part of where you come in. You played several characters and you composed music and worked with the sound effects. How did you think about using sound to shape the physical space that listeners are imagining when they hear the story? So when you like want to picture something sad, I just grab out my keyboard and just whip up something that sounds super sad. And then, But if I want to change the mood and set the scene for something more happy, I'll play something more um, extravagant and more like optimistic and upbeat. And it, it just really get, gets that pump in your step and like the audience is just like, wow, um, I can already tell this is like going to be like a great scene. Like I can expect great things. And did you work with the sound effects as well? I worked with some, but I'm just an amateur at this. The person I would completely trust doing this is my, is my good friend Finnegan. He's the one working on EQing all the sound and um, just working on all the sound effects. And he really knows what he's doing. And we even heard some of that sound design in that first clip. We hear doors open, we hear footsteps on stairs, and we hear these different atmospheric things that help us picture the space that we can't actually be in. So Whitney, you're a senior this year, so this is one of your last school plays. What did you think when you heard that pitch, that you'd be doing a radio drama instead of a stage play? At first, uh, I was I was kind of taken aback for a second. I've never done a radio play, so... I was thinking, I don't, I don't think the script can work. I had read through it and I was like, I just don't know. But as soon as we got into rehearsal, I, I completely trusted Mr. Andahar's judgment. And it really is a great play to do as a radio play. And again, I've never done one. So just the experience of not having those physical aspects that you can see on stage is so different. But I'm very glad we did it this way. And it's a great way to work around COVID and just kind of have a play that can be adapted to whatever situation we're in. One of the things that seems tough without the visuals is when you're developing a character, there are no costumes, there are no props. You're not even visually responding to other characters on stage. So how did you develop the characters you play? And maybe tell me a little bit about your characters. So I played Detective Gwendolyn Hetch. 
who is uh, kind of like the main person trying to figure out what's going on in the plot. And I'll try not to give away too much. But uh, developing the character was really unique. I found myself practicing uh, still using kind of like the physical aspect, you know, pacing around my room or using my hands to express something or facial expressions. And so while the audience can't see that, it really helps with character development because you're still getting those same emotions. Um, but you you work a lot more with your voice and you really have to concentrate on how you use different pitches and tones to convey to the audience what the scene is about. And that takes a lot of focus, definitely does. And it strikes me the way your voice is physical, even when you're just moving your hands, people can still hear the physicality in your voice, the way you're acting. Hagen, you also play several characters. How was it for you to develop those? Uh, one of my favorites is being Menachev Harold. He's a reporter and it takes place in the 1940s. And, you know, um, that kind of gives me my inspiration to do something like this. This Justin, Megan Malone reporting, something like that. You know, um, <laughs> And it's it's a really fun experience. That's so good. One of the things that I know I really enjoyed about high school theater was just the camaraderie of the people that you're putting this production together with. Whitney, did you still feel like you had that? Oh, most definitely. I think one of the best part about theater for me is just being able to go in every day and hang out with my friends, you know, in between scenes or after rehearsal. So it was definitely different. You didn't get that, you know, physical face-to-face social time. But one of my great friends, Madeline, uh, they actually have a scene with me. And it's really great just to have that social time. And, you know, we still talk after and laugh about our lines. So it's different, but it works. Yeah. What about for you, Hagen? Yeah, it's a great experience when I'm at rehearsal, like um, whenever I have like a really funny scene, everybody is screaming or just making different sound effects into their mics. I love that you still describe it as being at rehearsal, even though we're all separated by all of the screens and everything. Jonathan, tell me about the process of running remote auditions and remote rehearsals and then putting this entire production together remotely. Absolutely. Well, Challenge number one was how can we still gather in some sort of space, whether physical or virtual, to create this? Once I had the um, realization that we can do it as a radio drama, um, I realized it can still work just fine. But because of COVID, I had already decided to do virtual rehearsals. And then I just thought to myself, like, oh, I'll just have um, virtual auditions. And we had a little bit of a a callback to see how well direction could be taken online. But as far as online rehearsals, it was very strange as a director to say, okay, we're going to work scene one and everyone from that scene is staring right at you. And typically like you can, you can break out into different little um, groups, have some people work some lines, but during this phase, they were all staring right at you like, okay. And it was a lot of fun. There were a lot of points where I can tell that the fact that everyone is on screen together may have been intimidating, but I, I try to make it very clear, like, we can be silly. Let's do these crazy voices here. I'll break the silly mold by doing some ridiculous sound. And then you guys can go uh, just in case you're feeling self-conscious. That's great. I imagine the technical side had to be a bear, too. Who recorded the actors and mixed the audio? We live in a wondrous age of technology with a bunch of teenagers and they all definitely had a phone. So that was, that was super handy. I, I originally built in a week 
of staggered rehearsals where everyone could come in and rehearse their own thing. But then I realized, and your teachers all see this in e-learning, when you're looking down in the center of your screen, like looking around, we can tell. I was like, these guys all have phones. Okay. (laughs) So I, I think that could work. So I really just gave them the directive of test your equipment first to see if you can record, Um, listen to yourself as you're recording, we'll tell you if you need to redo it, and it worked out very well. I'm glad it worked out so well. Whitney, I just wanted to ask you what it was like to record yourself on your phone. It was very weird, (laughs) Um, just because having to listen back to make sure it sounded okay I'm not one who loves to uh, listen to myself, but it was necessary and it, it helped because I did have to, you know, kind of make adjustments here and there. So that was an important step, obviously. Yeah. And that's in some ways completely backward from a live performance where the whole thing is gearing up to doing it one time, one night, and then again, other nights, but it's all live and you don't get a redo. Hagen, how was it for you to record on your phone? The thing about that is I didn't use my phone. I actually <laughs> recorded from my laptop um, through GarageBand. I'm a house musician. I like make music for myself. And um, using like softwares like GarageBand, it's nothing new for me. So I thought, you know, instead of my phone, why don't I just make my audio as great as possible and go all out? And that's what I did. And it turned out great. Sounds like this was very in your wheelhouse. Um, Hagen and Whitney, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Like having theater has really made a hard year bearable. But this year has been really hard. How did having theater play into coping? I've always loved theater. Like I've loved productions. I've loved movies. And um, I've always like pictured myself like doing that. Something I could be a part of. But, you know, I've never really done it much. I was always like too afraid. But over time, I found it as like a way of expressing myself in ways that I couldn't imagine. Um, Like last year was my first musical, The Fiddler on the Roof, and it was like amazing. And when I found out that we were going into lockdown, I was just like, oh my gosh, I didn't know if I was able to get through it. But when I found out I could get a part in the new upcoming radio play, I thought, this is like a perfect opportunity. I just like made everything clear. It just made everything feel like so much more possible. It just makes me feel a lot better. That's great. Whitney, is there anything you wanted to add? Yeah, kind of just similar to what Hagen has been saying. It definitely made this semester a lot better than just having e-learning or just having everything hybrid. I would consider myself a pretty big athlete. So when I didn't have the chance to play my varsity volleyball season in the fall, it definitely kind of made me feel just really sad about not getting those senior moments. And I thought to myself, well, volleyball is not happening. I guess the play isn't happening. So I'm really appreciative that Mr. Andahar and everybody in the sound team and all the actors were able to come together and do this because you know, it's just one of those things that as a senior, you you definitely look forward to all the things that you normally participate in. And so just having this was really good. And I'll never forget it because it, it was probably one of the only extracurriculars at our school that was still going on, maybe besides cross country, that, you know, students from all grades, they didn't have to be athletes. They, you know, didn't have to be in a particular club could join. And that, that's just a really, we're really fortunate to have an opportunity like that. That's great. It's so hard to have the window close on so many things during a senior year. I'm glad the play was still able to go. 
The play itself, Trap, is a thriller set in a school auditorium. It weaves the mystery with interviews of witnesses, loved ones, and investigators. So I'm brand new to this job. I mean, it's my fourth day ever as a detective. And I'm, I really want to do a good job, but I can already tell that I'm not. And it's stupid things. Being new in a place gets in your way in ways you don't expect. Why are there two conference rooms with the same name? The fax machine. Do you press nine? Do you not press nine? And people are not, just edit this out, please. People are not as nice to me as I would be in their situation. And I can't even tell where the paper goes in this fax machine. So for the most part, I'm thinking, how could things get worse? And the whole incident starts and things get worse and worse and worse. Whitney Ricciardi there playing Gwendolyn Hetch. Jonathan, tell me more about why you chose this story. I chose Trap because there's just a lot of conventions that I thought would be fun to play with. I'm always a huge fan of fun sci-fi mysteries that kind of make your hair stand on end in certain points. And then also huge, huge fan of anything with any sort of twist. So I really thought that, okay, if I can pull this off, it's going to be incredible. And then we had to make some adaptations with COVID. And even in spite of that, Hagen's work with some of this soundtracking is absolutely masterful. So it just sounds so cool. Hagen, what in this story speaks to you without giving away any of the mystery? Yeah, uh, like Mr. Andivar is saying, um, I am a huge fan of twists. Um, uh, like it really speaks to me the fact that like it's really unexpected. Like the, the element of surprise is a like major thing to me, and kind of just like gets you to like, question everything that you've been thinking up until that one turn, and then it's just something completely different. And this has been a year with so many twists and turns. Whitney, what in the story most stands out to you or what have you most enjoyed? Yeah, I'm trying to think of how to say this without giving too much away. But uh, my character kind of goes through this journey of digging up information and trying to get to the bottom of what's happening. And it's really interesting because uh, there are definitely aspects of the play that you can kind of see, you know, what a detective goes through emotionally and not just logistically when they're trying to solve a case. And, and that was really cool to see. Yeah. Um, Whitney and Hagen, do either of you feel like this performance might have inspired you to do more work with audio as a medium or radio or anything like that? It definitely has taught me a lot of the control I have over my voice. Um, so in future productions, crossing my fingers that we'll have a spring musical it has taught me so much about just the certain aspects that you can use your voice for. And it just kind of opened up this whole new door to being an actress. I mean, I'm a really physical person. I'm very extroverted, but the voice portion is, it's taught me a lot about just how I can utilize that to best portray my character. Jonathan, how can people listen to Trap? People will be able to listen to Trap on the um, Colorado Springs School website, but it'll currently be for um, friends and families of CSS um, who will have the link. We're, we'll be working on how to get it out to a bit of a broader audience after that. Well, I want to thank you all so much for joining us. Yes, thank you so much. This is a great opportunity. Thank, thank you, you so yeah. much for having us. 
Hagen Malone and Whitney Richardier are students at the Colorado Springs School. They perform in the radio play Trap. Jonathan Andahar is the school's theater director. Even before the pandemic, small business owners struggled, and it's only gotten worse. An effort in Adams County is helping them keep doors open. Its aim is to fill a gap that formed long before the pandemic. Support for Spanish-speaking business owners. CPR's Haley Sanchez reports. Adriana Science garcia owns Divinas Hair Studio in Thornton. She says the shutdown hurt her business. At the beginning, I was really afraid. I was really stressed because I had to um, close for two months. So my main concern, how am I going to do with all the bills to continue with my rent? Before the pandemic, she had five hairstylists working with her. Now it's only me and my sister. She says the other stylists chose not to come back to work. They didn't think they would make enough money. Plus, they were worried about putting their own health at risk. So even though she reopened, she says she still lost a lot of business. She knew something had to change if she wanted to get through the pandemic. At that time, I was in need of marketing. I needed help to promote more my salon and uh, get more clients. She wasn't sure where to start, but when someone at her salon told her about the Alliance Business Assistance Center in Thornton, that's when I took the courage to ask for help. The city of Thornton opened the Resource Center in October with federal funds through the CARES Act. Robin Martinez, the city's business administrator, runs the center. She says the goal is to provide free support to struggling local businesses like Science Garcia's. It was a bit of a no-brainer that this is something that we really need and we need it now. Alliance was designed with COVID-19 in mind, so people can get help virtually or in person. When people walk in, they get their temperature taken and fill out a questionnaire about exposure to the virus. Workspaces are far apart and divided with plexiglass. Sometimes you got two people working at home, kids running in the background. <laughs> they might need a quiet place to sit and work or hold a meeting, and that's what this is available for. Martina says people have access to free workshops and technology like laptops. Counselors are also available to advise business owners and help them apply for grants or other aid. Martina says Adams County is filling a gap that's long existed for Spanish-speaking business owners. This is a community that's been underserved, and the resources have not been as available for them as as we provide in English speaking. So we definitely see that they're taking advantage of this and they appreciate the opportunity to have bilingual staff. Andy Figueroa is one of those. He says some of the people he works with are afraid to ask the city for help. For some, it's more than just a language barrier. They thought that the grants were not available to them. So we had to be proactive and go out to the community and talk to the business owners and say, hey, You don't need to be documented. You don't have to have illegal residence in the United States. He says his goal is to show business owners that they have the ability to grow. He says the pandemic challenged everyone to think differently. The COVID-19 crisis forced us, not only us as organizations, but the business owners out there, to become businesses of the 21st century by using different online tools like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Adriana Science garcia the salon owner, says she'll use these marketing skills even when things get back to normal. But it's the $20,000 grant that the center helped her get that's put her mind at ease. That will help me for three more months. 
So I'm really happy to be able to get that approved. Business is slowing down again as cases surge, and this grant will help her survive that. This is actually the first place that I feel comfortable as as Hispanic to come and ask for help, be humble, and have the courage to ask for help. She hopes other business owners will be able to get that kind of support in the coming months. I'm Haley Sanchez, CPR News. Finally today, a youth choir that is on a mission to find commonality with diverse groups of people through music. They're called VOCO, the Vocal Coalition. Co-founders Travis Branham and Katie Lushman formed the choir in 2017. It offers its members the opportunity to perform songs from their personal music backgrounds and exposes them to different styles of music. The pandemic has not slowed down VOCO. The group has put together virtual performances. The latest video is a collaboration with the Colorado Springs hip-hop duo The Reminders. The new song is called Foundation. of kings, what we will and enable to rise like burning fire, act of volcano salute to rebels, poets and people working for something greater, self-determined and focused and power when all together take our time with every step, to remember the way, never distract us, stay collected with each breath, we, we speak life into existence, you know where to find us, majestic promised land, no it's not a dream we manifest visions and ceremony last of a dying breed, lead and inspire by any means we champions, upset to help me survive, a destined to grow with exceptional plans of being time Youth Choir Vocal Coalition with Colorado Springs hip hop duo The Reminders. That's it for Colorado Matters today. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News.